So if you've got the, uh, the little uh, diagram, the, the cartoon, I'm, I'm not going to go over it. it uh, I, I hope you will link sometimes to the videos that go with these. They're very, very good. And um, the, uh, the thing that the, the writer of this or the, the author of this uh, graphic uh, pointed out is that there is uh, a word that is repeated over and over and over in the book of Ecclesiastes. And in Hebrew, it's Havel, H-A-V-E-L. And uh, it basically is the word that is translated in chapter one as vanity. So uh, I assume that uh, almost all of our translations of the Bible have, have brought the word vanity uh, into chapter one, verse two, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Is, is there any translation that uses any other word? Meaningless. Meaningless. That's interesting. Um, so it's then, and that's sort of the, the central word of the whole book is that we have a, an author. The Hebrew word is Hevel, H A E H E. V-E-L. Uh, in the, um, the graphic that you have, it's right under the word Ecclesiastes. And the, the idea is that it's um, it, that things are temporary or fleeting. Um, we tend to think the word vanity has to do with standing in front of a mirror and being overly concerned with what we see. But uh, in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, uh, it had the, the connotation of emptiness or uh, uh, the, the word literally translates vapor. So it's, it's, it's just grabbing on to a vapor. It's empty. It's meaningless. And, um, and so the, it's uh, used 38 times in the book. And so the author was, um, that, that's sort of what he rolled his whole uh, idea around. Now, I'll, I'll come back to the chart in uh, just a minute, but let's talk about the author for a second. Um, I, I don't know if last week, I, 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 if you weren't here last week, I tried to uh, uh, explain why I decided to take the, uh, the books out of order in your Bible. Uh, in your Bible, Song of Songs comes after Ecclesiastes, uh, but I chose to use Ecclesiastes last because I think you have to understand that the author of Ecclesiastes is the same one who tried all that stuff in, in Song of Songs. <laughs> he, he was the, the guy who had all those experiences. He was the, uh, the king who had 700 wives and 300 concubines and unlimited power and unlimited resources. And so we, 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 this, this is, um, I told you last week that I think he wrote the Song of Songs in the middle or towards the end of his life. Almost every scholar thinks that Ecclesiastes was written very near the end of his life as he's looking back. Um, now we, we think Solomon wrote it. The, the, it starts off the words of the preacher, um, so a little bit of, of vocabulary here. 
the word Ecclesiastes is the Latin um, word for church, basically. We, we hear that uh, ecclesiastical matters are church matters. And so Ecclesiastes basically means the gathering of the church. And it comes from the, uh, the Latin uh, Vulgate. The title of the book is, is basically a transliteration from Latin, as is our word ecclesiastical. The author of the book is the one who would speak to the church. And so the word for uh, preacher here is the, uh, the Hebrew word. Um, uh, if, if you look on your chart, it's in the upper left-hand corner, Kaholeth. And uh, the word Kaholeth means uh, teacher or preacher or debater or convener. It's the, it's the one who addresses the ecclesiastical gathering. And so the, uh, we, we think it's Solomon, but the, to be real honest, it's anonymous. The, the, we don't know for sure who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes because it's not really claimed um, other than in the, um, the, the superscript there, the words of the preacher or the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Does it say Solomon? So we assume it's Solomon because it's associated with wisdom and tradition tells us it's Solomon. And uh, that's what we're going to uh, go with for now. So a quick reminder. In Job, we talked about suffering and that the world gives us a definition or a reason for suffering that doesn't necessarily line up with the scripture. In Psalms, we talked about prayer. In Proverbs, we talked about decision-making. In Song of Songs, we talked about love and that the, the world is all too happy to give us a definition of those things. And it, it usually contrasts sharply with what the scripture says. Ecclesiastes is a little different because this book, it presents everything from a human perspective. We don't necessarily have words from God to people, and we don't necessarily have words uh, from the prophet to people about God. We have words from a preacher about life. Um, it's not associated with being a Super religious book. Oh, hey, Emily, she's back. Good to see you or see your name. Um, it's a um, it, it's a book that is a collection of poems, just like the other wisdom books. But this is very much um, speaking as a human who's just trying to tell people that he's a little exasperated that a lot of his experiences just don't satisfy. They, they, they sort of fall outside of the, the realm of, of what he expects from God. And oddly enough, in this book, 
the word Yahweh is never used. So the, the word that we become accustomed to that's usually translated in your Bible as uh, uh, all uppercase, but uh, L and then a smaller O-R-D, that's in capital letters. That's, that's usually what our English versions associate with the, the personal, intimate Yahweh. The word Elohim is the transcendent, mysterious, distant, and that's usually in English translated with capital G-O-D, God. And so when we read in English, God, which we see repeatedly in Ecclesiastes, we are talking about the one who is a, a separate other, not the one who is my friend, not the one who walks with me and talks with me and tells me that I am his own. It's this is a uh, the, the writer is is talking about a God that he believes in, a God that he worships, but a God that perhaps he feels some distance. Um. So one writer said that the best way to describe Ecclesiastes is that it's 11 and a half chapters of despair and hope and hopelessness, followed by one paragraph of an answer to the whole dilemma. Uh, and and it's, it's an interesting book to preach because it does seem uh, hopeless. It's, it's unique. It's, uh, it's filled with error. And now when I say error, I don't mean error. I mean that it describes human error. It's not telling us how to be. It's telling us a bunch of stuff he tried that didn't work. And some of it is a little spicy uh, that he, he says he, he tried it. He, he examines futility, a life lived. And this is where I want to go Sunday he describes the futility of a life lived without an eternal perspective, a life that's lived in the moment, a life that's lived according to the philosophies of the world. Now, I won't go over it, but I gave you a handout that, uh, that talks a lot about the philosophies of the world and that in the, the world's philosophies, there uh, philosophy usually tries to explain value or meaning or truth or beauty or purpose that that all of the philosophies of the world uh, they they try to explain those things. So we hear words like uh, uh, essentialism or existentialism or pragmatism or you know some of the uh, Confucianism and and some of the the philosophies and even some of the religions of the world that try to explain the purpose or meaning of life in terms of value, beauty, truth, um, origin, uh, purpose, and and that's what the preacher is looking for. He's he's looking for meaning. He's looking uh, for purpose, but. I love the way that one writer said it. The preacher or the writer of Ecclesiastes, he believes in God. And so his question is not the question of so many philosophies. Does God exist? 
But his question is, does God matter? His, his question is, does, does God care? Uh, we, I don't know if you've ever heard of the philosophy called deism. And it's a philosophy that basically says, okay, I believe in God, but I don't necessarily believe that he's all that concerned with what I do on an everyday basis. It's like he had the world on a fingertip like a basketball and he got it spinning and every now and then he keeps it spinning. But other than that, he doesn't involve himself with day-to-day -day activity. So deism. And so the, the, the preacher explores all of these uh, philosophies. And when I go through the, the text in just a moment, you can clearly see which of the philosophies he's exploring chapter by chapter. So his, his basic goal, and you got to listen closely here, because if you quote me, I'm going to be in real trouble. The basic goal of the writer of Ecclesiastes is to explore all the ways to find meaning and purpose in life without God. He explores all the ways that you can find meaning and purpose without God, because he says, I've tried that. He suggests that most of us spend most of our time pursuing things that don't matter. Wealth, fame, power, pleasure, that, that we spend a lot of our time in pursuit of those things, hopefully trying to find peace, trying to find meaning, trying to find something that satisfies. And quite frankly, the, the wealth of the king that's depicted here. Almost all of us have everything he has. We have access to it. We certainly have the ability to go buy stuff we want. We certainly have the ability to, to take vacations, to purchase entertainment. We, we certainly have, uh, now, now the, the wealth that he had in comparison to his subjects was was a, a, a vast gap, but I think God in his uh, way, shape, and form decided that, that Ecclesiastes would speak to the middle class of 2022, because that's exactly what it does. Is that what you say deism is? No, uh, deism is the thought that I believe in God, but I believe that he's detached from day-to-day uh, activity. He, he, I, I wouldn't need to pray to him because he doesn't necessarily hang around and answer my prayers. D-E-I-S-M. From the word deity. I believe in God, but not a personal God. Thomas Jefferson was a deist. Yeah, that's right. So, so, so this is at the end of his life, and he's saying, this is sort of my letter of failure. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you heard Nancy. She said, so this is at the end of his life, and it's sort of his admission Sorry. of failure. Um, we, we really want to say that Solomon turned out well. Uh, we, we really want to say that he turned it around and and did the right thing at the end of his life, but we just don't have any evidence that, that points to that. If you look at the end of his life in Second Kings, it, it doesn't indicate that he repented. It doesn't indicate, you know, the, the Second Kings talks about the, the anger of the First Kings. 
anyway, the end of uh, that book, it talks about that God's angry with him because of his wives and his concubines and that they, they led his attention away from the worship of Yahweh. And so here at the end of his life, first Kings, at the end of first Kings. And so here in Ecclesiastes, he never mentions Yahweh. He, he talks about Elohim, the, the God who is, is far away. And, and we wouldn't uh, assume that he cares about us. Um, so if Solomon wrote this, then the date is going to be somewhere 10th century AD, uh, BC. And of course, it's like so many other books. We're not sure that he wrote it, um, but I think that he did. And the reason that um, it's kind of interesting to me is because I think that this describes us. I think that he is trying to find something that provides meaning. And we could go so much deeper into this, but it's almost as if he's saying, I've had the wealth and the privilege to try everything to try to find satisfaction. And yet when I lay my head on the pillow, it's empty. It's a vapor. It's vanity. All is vanity. And so we, we can relate to this, right? We can relate to a sense that we wonder if the things that we're doing uh, make a difference. It's a wonderful life. You know, the movie that we're going to see a bazillion times in December. Uh, if, if I had never been born, would anybody even notice? And, and so the writer or the preacher, the, the teacher here is, is trying to say, I, you know, I, I have everything that the world would say matters, but it just doesn't seem to matter to me. Now, I think immediately about how God really didn't answer this question in full until the revelation of Jesus Christ. That Paul summed it up. He said, all of us have, have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We're all vain. We're all empty. We're all vapor. We've sinned. And, and without God, we remain a vapor. And then he says, and the wages of sin is death. The, the emptiness just, just takes us to the grave spiritually. We, we, don't, we don't have any way out. We don't have any recourse. But thanks be to God, he says, that he has provided a way. But God demonstrates his love for us. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Paul picked up this theme, and he overlaid the gospel, the preacher, in Ecclesiastes says, everything I've tried is empty. I can't get to God. The rich young ruler in the, in the scripture, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, love God and love people. He says, I've done that. All right, good boy. And Jesus said, which people? And he said, only the ones I like. <laughs> and and so, so we're all in this place where without God providing meaning 
And the word there, Skip, is theism, which rhymes with deism. But theism, like theology, tells us about a personal God. So the study of God or the belief in God, the philosophy of theism is the belief in one God. And so Paul pointed us to the, the only thing that fills the empty place. Pascal called it a God-shaped vacuum that exists in every man. And so we, we instinctively know that there's something in us that can only be filled by God, but the writer of Ecclesiastes decides to explore that for 11 and a half chapters. All right. Um, a few vocabulary words that are used a lot. He uses the word vanity a lot. We've talked about that, vapor. He uses the words or the phrase under the sun. And that's what tells us that he's, he's talking about things on earth. He's not trying to describe uh, uh, a heavenly uh, utopia. He's, he's saying this is the way things are here on planet earth. You know, we were born, we live, we die. That's it. And so under the sun refers to uh, um, the, the twin phrase to that is under heaven. But uh, the, the idea is that the preacher is talking about life here on earth. He talks about the word prophet. He uses that word P-R-O-F-I-T. He uses that word 10 times. And, and he's talking about uh uh, how can I achieve value? How can I uh, get to purpose? How can I uh, find excellence? Um, it's This particular word is only used here in the Old Testament. And it has the, the connotation of surplus or advantage or gain. So what, what does it profit a man? Jesus picked it up in the New Testament. But as a prophet, a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul. And he's he's definitely showing influence from the preacher. Um, let's see. Those are kind of the, the key words um, that are there. Let's take a lap through the book. Um, and then we're going to get to uh, the last uh, chapter. And hopefully I have uh, time to, to finish it up. All right. Any questions so far? Is this, you said this was his the last time that Solomon wrote anything. So is this, I mean, before it was Song of Solomon, Song of Songs, and uh, that was his wisdom of far as how to relate to um, a woman or. Can so, you guys hear Skip? I was just. Yeah, okay. I can't hear you on my. No, I just wondered. So this is what is he searching? He's searching. I thought he loved it's God. It's a great, a great question he because if Solomon wrote Proverbs, and we think he did, and if Solomon wrote Song of Songs, and we think he did, and if Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, and we think we, he did, what is he looking for? Yes. Uh, in Proverbs, he's looking for wisdom. He's looking for. 
uh, discernment. He's looking to uh, uh, to describe what God has taught him about wisdom. And I, I think Proverbs was written when he was a, a fairly young man, uh, either either young or, or early middle age. I think Song of Songs was written either when he was um, fairly young in his kingship, but certainly after he had uh, begun his political marriages. But Ecclesiastes, we're, we're pretty sure he's an old man realizing that his power as a king is transitory, that his, uh, his fame, his wealth will just last a minute. And he's reflecting, he's trying to find meaning. He's trying to, to I don't know, I, as I've gotten older, I've been more interested in legacy, more interested in what I would leave behind. And I, I told you that I think one of my assignments in retirement is to disciple my grandson. Uh, we, we leave behind our, all, uh, you know, we started off by joking, Bill, he who dies with the most toys wins. And the pragmatist said, he who dies with the most toys is still dead. Um, and, and, and so when I, I don't doubt that as he is aging, that the, uh, the king, the preacher is starting to wonder if, if all he's done matter, you know, he's known as the wisest man ever. So what? So as you say, when he has the wisdom, he knows, he knows God. So he, he knows the God. love for God is the joy. But I think he's become distant from it. I think here in, in Ecclesiastes, we pick up that uh, maybe his relationship with God has become lukewarm. Um, doubting? No, I don't think he's doubting God. I think he just wants God to show up. You know, I, I think he... You know, he, he talks about pleasure, and it's almost like he wanted God to steer him away from the pleasure to himself. But but I, we, we see a very immature, unhealthy discipleship in Ecclesiastes, and uh, we'll get that a little bit as we walk through it. So if you were to describe the philosophy of chapter 1, it would probably be sort of a, a fatalistic, uh, life is meaningless, uh, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Um, and, and so he, he, he starts off, and this is kind of the, the there, there are two sections of Ecclesiastes that we all remember, one chapter one and chapter three. And in chapter one, he says, everything is empty. Everything is vain. Everything is temporary. It's fleeting. What does a man gain by all the, the, toll, the toil? He uses the word vanity 38 times. So he's, he's repeating this idea that everything seems like a vapor. Verse four, a generation goes, a generation comes. The earth remains. The sun rises. The sun goes down. The wind blows to the south, the wind blows to the north, around and around it goes. Streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. You know that picture, what, what's it called? The, the picture of the four staircases that all look like they're going up. 
There's a word for that. Uh, illusion. What's it called, Optical Emily? Illusion. Unmute. It's a particular artist, and I think his name is E S C H E R. Yeah, the Escher Stairway. Yeah, yeah, the Escher Stairway, and it's like you're 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 climbing and you're climbing and you're climbing. It's like a stairmaster in the gym. You're climbing and climbing, and you're not going anywhere. And and that's sort of the the, the preacher. He's he says we're on this Escher Stairway, and uh, the the Streams run to the sea, but the sea doesn't fill up. Um, they evaporate. They flow again. One writer said that, that the preacher really was wise. He has a remarkable grasp of conservation here. He's talking about evaporation and rain and uh, the cycle of the wind and all of that. But he gets down to verse 12, and he says, I've been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I, I've tried to be wise. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. It's an unhappy business. I've seen everything that is done, and all is vanity. And there's another phrase that he uses a lot, striving after the wind. So in 16, he says, I... I've said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom. I've applied my heart to no wisdom, to no madness, to no folly. It's all striving after the wind. So in chapter two, if you're going to write a word, if you're a Bible writer in her, uh, the word hedonism, you could write over chapter two because that's the philosophy he's now describing. Hedonism, H-E-D-O-N-I-S-M, the pursuit of pleasure. Uh, the pursuit, usually it has to do with wine, women, and song. And uh, so he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. And so he, he speaks about pleasure, planted vineyards, gardens, parks, pools, I bought male and female slaves. I had great possessions of herds and flocks, gathered silver and gold, men and women who would sing many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Verse 11, then I considered everything I'd done. And everything was vanity, striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. That, under the sun. There's nothing to be gained on earth. Even though I had all this power, all this fame, all this pleasure, it, it, it didn't satisfy. There was nothing to be gained. This reminds me of the temptations of Christ in the desert. It really is. And I, I think that's intentional, Emily. I think that uh, that God meant to say that the preacher was talking about the vanity of trying everything. And it's like Jesus knew that it was vain. And so he responded to uh, Satan. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the father. He, he points back to the relationship with God, something that the preacher here is not going to get to till chapter 12. He, he, he's still talking about the emptiness of, uh, of hedonism. 
Um, then he talks about living wisely and uh, and work toil, um, and he concludes all all of that is vanity. Um, twenty four. He sort of verse twenty four. He summarizes nothing better for a person that he should eat, drink, and find enjoyment. This also I saw is from God. For apart from Him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? There's there's these little snippets. I I was reading verse twenty four and twenty five where there's these little snippets when he he kind of wakes up and and remembers that God is the source of all things. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give the one who pleases God. This is vanity. And a good place to be reminded that every now and then, you almost feel like he's having a good day. Yeah, every every now and then he breaks into this despair with a, a balance of rightness. He'll talk in a minute about how much uh, uh, the bride of your youth uh, is meaningful. He talks about family. Here he talks about um, uh, who can have enjoyment apart from God. So if you were going to put a label on chapter three, it would be the philosophy of existentialism. E-X-I-S-T exist, existentialism. Yes. And uh, existentialism is a philosophy that basically says, I only trust in my experience. I trust in what I do. I trust in, in what I can accomplish. Uh, it's sort of a fatalism. So he says, here's the other famous chapter made famous by a song by the birds in the 70s. Uh, for everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And all the people saying, turn, turn, turn. <laughs> um, I think I'm going to have that as my walk-up music on Sunday morning. So, <laughs> All right. She says, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant. Time to pluck up. These are contrasting in all of them. And he does this for eight verses. Uh, time to love, time to hate, time for war, time for peace. And, uh, and then he goes back into uh, work, which is sort of a reflection on the existentialism. What gain has the worker from his toil? That almost sounds socialism, but... Uh, but but he he's 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 saying I've tried <clears throat> I've tried that that to to keep a perspective on a time to seek a time to lose a time to keep a time to to get rid of a time to tear a time to sow. Uh, verse sixteen: I saw under the sun place of justice there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even though there's wicked, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and every work. This is one of those times when the, the sun shined through just a little bit and he reminded himself that God was in control. He didn't feel like he was in control, so he was crying all this stuff. Verse 20, all go to one place, all are from dust, and to dust all return. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. So he tried hedonism in chapter 2, tried existentialism, in chapter three, 
He tries capitalism in chapter four. He said, uh, I saw all the oppressions that were done, the tears of the oppressed, no one would comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. Through capitalism, you, you get what you work for. He said, uh, I saw, verse four, that in all the toil and all the skill and work came from a man's envy of his neighbor, competition. The strong survive. Uh, you dollars paid for a day's work. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Meaning the, the fool doesn't work for his food. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of oil and striving after the wind. So he's he's saying capitalism doesn't work. But then he says, but it is better when you're working with someone. Chapter uh, four and verse nine is a verse that you've heard before. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. But if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Um then the last uh, verse 12, a threefold cord is not easily broken. We have a Sunday school class in this church called the threefold cord. And it's young marrieds who don't have children yet. And it comes from this verse. Um, better uh, if two lie together, they keep warm. How can a man keep warm alone? Um, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. So he tries capitalism. Chapter five, he tries religion. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Religion. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know they are doing evil. So he said, let's, let's try going to church. Let's try getting something out of it. Let's... Uh, Let's try to hear what the, the, the priest is saying. Verse 6, let not your mouth lead you into sin. Do not say uh, before the messenger that it was a mistake. Uh, why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? So, so try to follow the rules in religion. Try to give the right sacrifices. Try to say the right things. Do the right things. Be the right person. Maybe God will bless us and not be angry and destroy the work of our hands. And he goes back to wealth and honor uh, in the rest of chapter five. Um, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, verse 10, nor he who loves wealth with his, his income. This is man. So he's tried religion. He's tried capitalism. He's tried wealth. He's tried existentialism. He's tried hedonism. He's tried to find meaning in life. And uh, at the end of chapter five in the first part of chapter six, he says, I'm gonna try materialism. I'm gonna see what I can accumulate. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun. It lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions and honor. So there is a heavy weight laying on a man who has wealth, possessions and honor. So he, he, he sort of tells us from the get-go that, that he's done all these things, but he didn't find satisfaction there. 
He says, if a man fathers a hundred children, and children, of course, were a sign of wealth. Uh, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, he has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better than him. Better than he, that he would never have lived than that he had collected all this wealth for no reason. So chapter six, he's talking about materialism. Anybody know what stoicism is? Yeah, what will be will be. A stoic is uh, is one who's uh, who, uh, a practiced indifference to life. Whatever. Who cares? It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Did you get that new job? Well, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And so he's going to try that in chapter seven. Stoicism. Yeah. A good name is better than a precious ointment. The day of death is better than the day of birth. Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. You hear the stoicism? This is the end of all mankind. Sorrow is better than laughter. Verse 3. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of fools is celebrating. What will be will be that it's topsy-turvy. It doesn't make any sense. The world is broken. Better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of the fools. That was one of those verses that just breaks through the despair. He says, I don't care if the fools are laughing and dancing. The wise man's silent. I'd still rather hear the voice of the wise man. Verse 8, better is the end of a thing than the beginning. Um... Stoicism. Consider the work of God, who can make what has, who can make straight what He has made crooked. Verse fourteen: In the day of prosperity, be joyful. The day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so man may not find out anything. What will be, will be. So then you have a section. In chapter 8, verse 1, through chapter 11, verse 8. And I label this as pragmatism. It's, it's sort of a section of what works. You know, so he's, he's tried capitalism, competition. He's tried hedonism, the fruit of pleasure. He's tried materialism, accumulation. He's tried uh, religion. But now he's finally kind of settling into, well, you know, at the end of the day, it's what works, what gets you through the day. And so we we hear a, a pragmatism. He said, keep the king's command. Pragmatism. It's another philosophy. Keep the king's command. Follow the rules. Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar. Now, the preacher here didn't get to render unto God what is God's, but he says, keep the king's command. It's, it's just easier for you if you stay out of trouble. For the word of the king, verse 4, is supreme. And who may say to the king, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing. 
You won't get in trouble. It's it's really better for you. Uh, verse 10, and I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done. This is vanity. The sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man fully set to do evil. Therefore, uh, though a single sinner does a evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear the Lord because they fear him. Just do what works. It's, it's better to fear the Lord than not. Verse 14, there's a vanity that takes place on earth. There are righteous people uh, that bad things happen to and wicked people that good things happen to. Verse 17, then I saw all the work of the Lord of God. Uh, that's uh, Elohim, that, that man cannot find the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it. Even though a wise man claims to know, he won't find out. Just do what works. Verse 1, chapter 9, death comes to everybody. I'll tell a story just because I remember it. We had a, a youth trip one time where we had a bus driver who was clearly a pragmatist. And his, his little safety speech that he gave all these frightened teenagers as we were about to leave on this bus for camp, every sentence was ended with, and then you die. <laughs> so he'd say, the bus is rolling, you're standing up in your seat, you're singing your songs, you're playing your games, I have to hit the brakes, you go through the windshield, and then you die. You're getting up, you're eating your food, you're, you're throwing stuff, you're playing tag in the aisles, I have to hit the brakes, you go through the windshield, and then you die. And it was like, by the time he finished his little safety speech, we were all so depressed, we needed camp in order to cheer us up. But uh, clearly a pragmatist, then you die. That's what chapter nine is all about. I examined it all. <laughs> they were terrified. I was terrified. Um, and I won't even tell you about his speech as to why we weren't allowed to use the bathroom on the bus. <laughs> it made him look like a bad driver. Suck down the hole, then you die. <laughs> so the, 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 the preacher here is a pragmatist who is saying at the end of life, it's all vain. And then he has a little bit of an epiphany in chapter nine, verse seven. Hey, go eat bread with joy, drink wine with a merry heart. God has approved this. Let your garments be white. Let oil not be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life. You enjoy the good things. That's what works. Yes, it's temporary, but it's good. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work, no thought of knowledge, no thought of wisdom in Sheol, the place of the dead, which is where you're going. Then you die. Chapter 9, beginning in verse 11 he sort of uh, recaptures a lot of what he said in Proverbs. Wisdom is better than folly. You remember Lady Wisdom and Dame Folly? Verse 17, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler. 
uh, among flu uh, among uh, fools. Um, verse twelve in chapter ten, verse twelve: the words of a wise man's mouth when in favor, lips consume fools. That section ends in in chapter eleven, verse eight, where he says, "So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all." But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. The end of the day, everything's a vapor. He sort of changes voice in chapter 11, verse 9. Uh, because it, if you don't put, I actually drew a line in my Bible with a, just to say there's a, there's a hard stop between chapter 11, verse 8, and chapter 11, verse 9. So he says, rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in all the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart, the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. And so he's beginning to show us what he thinks he's learned at the very end of the, the, the of it all. Remove vexation from your heart, put pain away from your body, youth and the dawn of life or vanity. Remember the creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come, before you lose your innocence and get disillusioned. Remember the days of your creator. Another hard stop um, between chapter eight, a uh, verse, chapter uh, twelve, verse eight, and chapter twelve, verse nine. Um, everything after chapter twelve, verse eight, is sort of summary. So he says, besides being wise, the preacher taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying, and arranging proverbs. Preacher sought to find words of delight. Uprightly, he wrote words of truth. Sounds like Solomon. Yeah, the words of the wise are like goads, which means that the words of the wise poke at you until you sort of obey them or, or take attention to them. He says uh, they are all given by one shepherd. And that's probably the most intimate word that he uses to talk about God in the whole collection the word shepherd there my son beware of anything beyond these and verse 13 he concludes the matter the end of the matter has all been heard fear god and keep his commandments now there's a translation issue with the next line that i just want to rephrase for you because i it makes a lot more sense most of your translations say something like this. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. It's really better translated, for this makes a man whole. And I hope you hear the difference. Fear God, that's the duty of man. No, Fear God, and it makes you whole. You remember what he said in Proverbs? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom. 
It's, uh, it's better than silver or gold. So fear God. Keep commandments, for this will make a man whole. For God will bring every deed into judgment and with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Take that, theists. Take that, pragmatists. Take that, capitalists. Take that, Confucianists. Take that, existentialists. I am placing my trust in the one who will judge everything, every secret thing, every evil thing. Yeah, I, I think it's most writers see a, a very messianic kind of uh, tone in these last couple of verses for God will bring every deed unto judgment. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is there for now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He will bring everything under judgment. But as Isaiah said, he laid on him the iniquities of us all. Alan? Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Where do you put fatalism in this? Uh, I would probably put that in the first chapter. Um, the the meaninglessness, the the vanity of it all. <laughs> Not in stoicism or uh well, I mean, you know, all of them are basically in. predestination or yeah, they all sort of uh, blend in together, but uh, uh, pure nihilism or fatalism, I'd probably put in the either in the, the, the first chapter or or perhaps in the seventh chapter. But, uh, you know, it's there, there's no doubt that he is summoning to mind uh, all these philosophies of the world. And, and again, to me, that points towards Solomon. Because he had all these political alliance wives from all over the world. So he had heard from the Egyptians and from the Persians. And he, I mean, he married uh, Egyptians, Persians, Macedonians, uh, uh, Spartans, the, the Greeks, the Egyptians. And so uh, he had heard of uh, different religions and different philosophies from all of the world. Uh, Plato, Aristotle, they weren't around yet, of course, but uh, he, he, he had heard these thoughts from all of the world. He says, so I tried them all. And at the end of the day, the relentless nature of time and death and everything in between us have to point us to an eternal perspective. Every time I do a funeral, I go, I can do a funeral of a follower of Christ with joy because everybody knows this isn't all there is. Absolutely. That Jesus said in John 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many spaces, many places, many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And so we... We, we, we grieve, but we grieve with hope because unlike the preacher, 
we have discovered that eternity is a promise that we see by faith and not by sight. And yet, because of that faith, we have hope. So the preacher challenges us, right? He, he challenges us as to what we find. How, where are we looking for meaning? Where are we trying to find fulfillment? Where are we trying to gain satisfaction? Is it, is it these earthly philosophies, these earthly strategies? Or is it, at the end of the day, um, God so loved the world that he gave us his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And so the, the preacher closes his document with a, a little bit of pessimism, but at the same time, he points us back to uh, the hope that is in the eternal. Doesn't solve any mysteries, does it? Doesn't answer questions. Just like Job, you know, the uh, I, I said one Sunday, the writer of Proverbs and Psalms and maybe even Song of Psalms, those are those are uh, questions for which the writer provides answers. But in Job and Ecclesiastes, there are no answers. There is a, it, they, they both end in mystery. And they make us uh, acknowledge that we don't know all there is to know about God. And we will never know this side of heaven. Paul said, I, I, I haven't arrived. I haven't attained it. But I press on towards the high calling so we 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 are left with mystery and I, I think that's very intentional i think he wants us to to understand that god is mysterious and that he is he will not be defined he will not be limited he he will come to us not as the deist thinks but we who are theists would say he is personal he is more yahweh than Elohim. Because he is not transcendent and distant. He is transcendent and intimate. And so if we look at Song of Songs and the intimacy that he pursued, we understand that he maybe at the end of this book has not quite found the intimacy that he seeks with God. But we can continue to pursue it. All right, we'll do some more on Sunday morning. That uh, is our last of the wisdom books. Um, next week, we start Isaiah. So we will be in uh, the prophecy of Isaiah uh, all the way through the end of the year. So we'll have, um, I believe, eight sermons in Isaiah. Um we're going to divide it into two sections. One are the uh, uh, the parts of Isaiah's prophecy that speak of the wonders of God, and then the uh, for Advent we will look at the messianic prophecies mm -hmm. in Isaiah that point to the coming Christ. So we'll break down those things in. Uh, Wednesday nights and then dive into them a little bit on Sundays. Thank you all for being with us tonight. Love you much. Thank you for Bible study.